This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Well, you know, I was sitting there thinking I'm kind of proud of myself picking this topic of conviction. You know, six months ago, we decided to uh, do this series, and I thought, you know, I'm almost prophetic in the sense of the timing of that in light of what's taking place in our nation. Because we are at a time where, with all that's happening that you see in the newspapers, all you see on TV, you are seeing a country wrestling with this very issue right now. You know, in light of the uh, spotlight on the presidential sex scandals, you know, what's happened in all that is that we have ratcheted up this issue of conviction, morality, standards to a whole new level in the social psyche of American life. It started years ago. Remember when Dan Quayle made the statement about Murphy, Murphy Brown and family values and the media just hounded him about that? And yet really what that was was kind of a historical beginning point, a flashpoint that has come at us like waves on a beach ever since, where every so often America is having to swallow water and decide, what do we really believe? What are our convictions? Do we have any convictions? And now with the presidential scandal being in the spotlight, this debate has taken on even a more serious and even darker tone. I mean, when you listen to people on TV or in the newspaper or on radio or just your friends at a coffee shop or whatever, one of the darker tones that you hear from them is, how much more permissive can we be? How much further can we go? How much more can we allow? I mean, everybody's just kind of wringing their hands, wondering about where is the conviction about what's right and wrong? All that's happening today are just simply symptoms that just keep whispering and shouting to us this very important topic. You know, we're also having to face as a nation the ever-increasing public fruit of that permissiveness. For decades, what was done in private is now increasingly being borne out in public. In fact, some of it, it flies in our face every day. When you turn your TV on, you see even more explicit images, and you wonder, is there an end to that? When you listen to the language, just the normal civil dialogue of American life, it has gotten more and more crude. Four-letter words are just commonplace today, even in front of our children. We measure our crudeness today in ever-increasing statistics of crime and violence and abuse and addiction and abandonment and alcoholism and fraud and deception and political intrigue and deceit. We see our permissiveness modeled in our leaders and we see the results of our permissiveness in the lives of our children or in the lives of our neighbors' children. And we're shocked. But worst of all, we are finding today how helpless we are in light of these declining standards. We are a nation who has exalted tolerance for so long 
and our own personal rights that we've actually stripped ourselves of any ability to meaningfully discuss these issues and decide what we really believe, especially about standards and national morality. So while we see ourselves becoming more and more indecent and more and more immoral, and we wring our hands in the coffee shop, all we can do is continue to talk about tolerance and our personal rights. We just can't get to the issue of decisions about standards. They elude us even while they kill us. You know, it reminds me of another day. Another day when God spoke through, through Hosea, the prophet, and this is what He said to their day of declining standards because they were exactly where we are. And Hosea was wringing his hands and God came and He spoke to him and He said this, For the Lord has a case against this nation because there is no truth or conviction our knowledge of God here. But there is swearing and there is deception and murder and stealing and adultery and this whole land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes. And yet, there is none who can find fault with anyone. And there is no one who has the courage to offer reproof about everything that's going on. Now does that sound familiar? Does that not feel like our impotent day of conviction? That's why I feel like I'm a prophet. It's a great time to be speaking on this very timely subject. You know, I've noticed that the morality that we do have, especially among our young people, has taken on a pragmatic color. People may not divorce as quickly today. In fact, uh, believe it or not, the divorce rate has even declined slightly. But the reason they don't divorce is not because people today have come to the conviction that divorce is wrong, as much they have learned from the school of hard knocks how high a price it is to pay. They've learned how it affects kids. They see how difficult it is in finding success in someone else. And so, for purely pragmatic reasons, divorce is declining. Among young people, promiscuity may not be as high as it was, for instance, in the 70s. But it's not because we believe sleeping around is wrong. In fact, we're at record levels about a belief that it's okay. And yet we're doing it less. Why? Because we fear the results of it. The sexually transmitted diseases. The fear of lawsuits against us if we sexually harass someone. The fear of death. You see, the guiding rails of our morality are not the clear, solid rights and wrongs of yesterday, more and more, our morality is a calculating assessment. Fluid. A calculating assessment of how much pain versus how much gain. And if we calculate there's more gain than pain, then we do it. It's all pragmatic. Now the reason I offer that is because it's against that national backdrop that we're const constantly and presently experiencing that I want to offer this present and final message on conviction. Because I think there's a better way to live. A more successful way to live. A way of life that actually experiences the life that tolerance and permissiveness is constantly grabbing at, but never able actually to achieve for itself. 
a way of life that builds a future rather than wounds the next generation, a way of life that Jesus called the abundant life. And let me tell you, and for you young people, hear this well. At the core, at the center, at ground zero of the abundant life is one word, conviction. That's where it all starts. It's with conviction. Now, because this is the final message, let me just summarize a few of the things that we've already talked about. Here's the first. We learned last time that conviction is much more than what we call soft belief. You know, those loosely defined and even more loosely held values that's so prevalent among everyone. We define conviction this way, as a firm belief in a specific truth, which then you hold tightly and you can articulate clearly and that you're willing to make any sacrifice to maintain. That is a conviction. That's a real belief in the kingdom of God. Conviction is to today's soft belief kind of what Arnold Schwarzenegger is to the Pillsbury Doughboy. Kind of get those images there? Conviction is something rock hard. Soft belief is something flexible and flabby and movable and laughs when you stick it in the stomach because it really doesn't mean it anyway. Secondly, we learned that conviction matters. Three reasons I gave you last week or two weeks ago was that they enrich your life. They give you life. Now, we, we sometimes feel like coming to a hard, fast, rigid conviction is keeping life from us. It's just the opposite. Every business knows that. Every athletic team knows that that rock-hard convictions is the way to life. So it enriches your life. But not only does it enrich your life, it improves the world around you. It gives life to others. And if we understand those convictions as being healthy and other people understand them as being healthy, then we want to give them away to others. And so it empowers the next generation. Unfortunately, I think for some of us, if we write out our convictions and look at some of them, we'd rather keep them hidden because we don't want our kids to live that way. But real convictions is what you give away. You empower the next generation. And third, we learn that the best convictions of all are the ones that you can consciously articulate and define. And that's why in my last message, I told you how important it was, at least in this age, might not be true for other ages, but at least in this age, how important it is to write them out. What do you really believe in life? And a lot of you have done that, and you find how surprisingly valuable writing out a conviction is because we often are driven by forces we can't explain. And if people I say, why did you do that? We're not really sure. But writing out our convictions changes all that. It brings what we believe about life, for good or for ill, out in the open, out in the light, into print, before us. We can see it. And it forces us to face ourselves and ask, is this really what I believe? Is this really what I'm living my life for? Am I really doing this? Because I've written it out here. And would I want to pass this on to my children? Writing is so important in this present age because it urges us to consciously decide what we intend to give our lives to and then it keeps speaking to us through time, holding us accountable to what we said we really do believe. Now I want you to know that if you don't make a conscious decision to what you believe is important, you will live your life in a drift every day, 
unconsciously deciding to live for the unimportant, to the immediate, to the expedient, to the compromised. And then wonder why, why don't I have life? That's what our world keeps saying. I'm doing all this stuff, I have all this stuff. Why don't I have life? You have to decide where life is first and then go get it. And that has to be a conscious decision. Now having said that, that's kind of our backdrop. Having said that, I want Jesus to be our teacher here this morning, so turn to His words. They're over in Luke 14, and let's see what He says about the cost of conviction. Luke chapter 14, and as you turn there, I want you to know that this section of Scripture we'll be looking at this morning runs from verses 15 to 33, and if you look at it in your Bible, well, I want you to look a lot in your Bible today. If you look at it in your Bible, you'll notice it's broken down into two sections. There are two events occurring here, two different settings. The first setting that we're picking up on is actually a dinner party. Jesus has been invited by some Pharisees and by some intellectuals to a small dinner party. And this is kind of the upper crust of society, the people that think they've got it made. I mean, it's like got a little dinner party down the Heights or out in Chennault, Pleasant Valley, little group getting together, and they, they want to talk to Jesus. When you get to verse 25, though, the setting drastically changes. Suddenly we're on the road. It's not a small group, it's a big group. In fact, it's a great multitude. It's a crowd. And they're walking along with Jesus. They're for Him, you know, and they're, they're wanting to hear from Him. They're not so much contemplating who He is. They think they know who He is and they want to hear from Him. Those are the two settings. And as I said, these two very different groups, one is curious, one is mildly committed but what you're going to see in both those, and it's an underlying theme if you start watching it through the Scriptures, is that Jesus Christ is constantly assessing people and watching these groups and thinking about what they need. And what I discovered is that in both these settings, Jesus perceives that these people are trying to live their life on a soft belief. And what he's going to do, and if you follow with me, what he's going to do is he's going to apply the ointment of conviction on that soft belief and see how they respond. And as we do that, hopefully, you'll get the opportunity to respond as well. So let's look at verse 15. Notice it picks up in this dinner party. Now we're back to the dinner party. And it says, And when one of those who was reclining at the table heard this from Jesus, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Boy, that's a great statement. Now, Jesus has just been talking about eternity and the resurrection. I'd like to put it under the big banner, heaven. He's talking about eternal life, heaven. And these intellectuals and philosophical thinkers and Pharisees, you know, get caught up in this discussion, and one of them blurts out the statement. It, 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 it could be paraphrased, man, isn't heaven just great? That's kind of the, the sense you get. And though the text doesn't tell us it's almost like everybody at the table, you know, they, you know they're, they're uncomfortable with Jesus to begin with. But it's kind of like finally some, somebody said something everybody can agree with, you know. And so after he says that, you could just almost feel everybody nodding in approval at this point. It's somewhat like we feel even in our day because everyone's for heaven. Aren't you for heaven? Time Magazine did a poll uh, this last uh, fall and found out that 98% of Americans believe in an afterlife. It doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative, Catholic or Protestant, New Age or Mormon. It doesn't matter if you're old or young, rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're an absolute wild man or a straight-laced fundamental. 
In the American landscape, everybody's for heaven. And you could have said this statement at a giant national dinner party, man, isn't heaven great? And everybody, e pluribus unum. Everybody would have gone, oh yeah, yeah. Would have nodded. You know, you could see all the heads bobbing like that taco dog, you know, in the commercial. <laughs> I love that commercial, by the way. They're all kind of bobbing there. And Jesus hears that. And he's at the table too. And he sees all the heads nodding. And he responds with a story that's introduced with a word that suddenly makes us think, uh-oh, something's coming. Do you see the word in verse 16? It's the very first one. What is it? But. Now, doesn't that, isn't that kind of arresting? But. You know, after you've just told somebody how good going to Honduras is or how good that vacation was or how great that new car you bought and they're sitting there nodding in agreement, you know, and they've had one of those, but they know what it's really like and they finish and they go, but. And, and you go, oh, he's going to say something maybe I don't like. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's not going to disagree with what this guy said. He agrees with the statement as it's presented. But the point is here is this, pre this presentation of heaven is a broad concept. It's a generalized hope. Listen, folks, it's a soft belief. Soft. And now what he's going to do is provide the ointment of conviction. He's going to begin to massage it into that soft belief and bring some clarity to it. Make the general move into the specific. He's going to make it revealing. He's going to make it more serious. He's going to require people to make a decision before he's finished. Let's look at the story. And he said to him, a certain man was giving a big dinner. I mean, now they've gone from a small dinner party to a big dinner, a feast. And he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of land. I need to go look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife, and for this reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. And then the head of the household became angry. And he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, then go out in the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Wow. We started out in this broad, soft belief. Everyone's going to enjoy heaven. Won't it be great? And at the end of this story, man, everybody's crossing their arms and legs because Jesus said that the special invited guest are not going to eat the dinner. They're not even going to be there. And now you've got to chew on, well, what is He really saying here in this story? Let me tell you, in this story, everything is packed with meaning and needs to be contemplated because that's what stories do. You know, historian William Barclay points out that in Palestine at this time, you would oftentimes get invited to a feast on a particular day, but in that invitation, you were not told the time of the feast. That was kind of common. You just accepted the invitation to go. 
But then when the day came, you waited until the slave came to get you because there were a lot of preparations and sometimes it would take longer than sooner. So you might go eat the feast at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or you might have to wait till 10 o'clock at night. But the, the actual hour was still to be announced. But when the slave came to bring you, to take you to the feast, it would be a grave insult if in the delay of you thinking you were going to go there, you decided to do something else and rejected the general invitation that you had accepted maybe days or months earlier. And that's the backdrop of the story. Now, I can't help but believe that when Jesus is here, this little group of intellectuals, theologians, philosophers, heard this story after making this statement about heaven, I can't believe that they couldn't start making some obvious applications. And I hope maybe you can do that as well, but I'm going to help you. Because here's, here's kind of the picture now taken out of the story theologically. Here's what Jesus is saying. To accept a belief in heaven as a place of ultimate life and happiness, where all this life is ultimately leading us, which he had said in verse 15, to say you accept that belief, but then you refuse to follow the one that God finally sends to lead you to that glory. And you make an excuse and don't heed him or follow him. What you have is not a real conviction. What you have is a soft belief that has no reward attached to it. None. And no matter how much you accept the belief, when it comes time for the belief to become a reality, you will be excluded because you didn't follow the one who was sent to take you there. Now, does everybody understand that? Is that now kind of helping you with the story? Because that's what he's talking about. See, Jesus was there. That's why they had him at the dinner party. They were trying to decide. They believed in heaven, but they hadn't decided on the slave, the servant, the Son of God. But now that he was there, what he was going to do is he was going to force a decision, a conviction on each one of them. Am I the Messiah? And what they would probably do, and probably what some of them actually ended up doing, was that now forced with a very specific conviction rather than a soft belief, they would do like some of the people did in the story. When they were presented with the opportunity to follow, they chose instead to follow their real convictions about what they really thought life was about. So what did they choose? Well, the first one chose his land, which is a clear symbol of just possessions. See, when it finally came down to making his conviction statement about heaven, he would write on his little sheet, I believe heaven is in possessions, not in eternity. And I'm going to live for that. Because now that I've got the opportunity to follow one to heaven, I'm going to instead choose to find life in my possessions. The second one said, well, I'm going to uh, go out and look at the oxen I've bought, which is a clear symbol of one's profession. So what he puts on his little value conviction sheet is, I believe life is in my work. I think that's where I'm going to find life. And we'll give myself to that. The last one said, well, I'm married and I can't come. <clears throat> so he's saying, I think where real life is, is in a person, a relationship. And I'm going to work my whole life. Now listen, because I know people who do this. 
They work their whole life. They expend all their energy with the conviction that if I just find the right person, I'll find life. Hear me, singles? And we're over here on the other side, the rest of the congregation saying, I found that person, but it didn't give me the life I thought it was going to give me. Or I got that great job, and it didn't give me the life I thought it was going to give me. Or I have all these things, and I'm trying to buy even more, but it's not giving me the life I thought it was going to give me. But I thought it was heaven. And you know what I found? It's just Arkansas. <laughs> Please hear me. This is exactly what Jesus is massaging into them. He's saying, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? Because if you really believe it, if it's a firm belief that you can clearly articulate and maintain with any sacrifice, you'll follow it. And you've chosen not to follow me. And in the end, you won't have what you intellectually give assent to in your belief system. You see, these, pe these people are like so many today. Churchgoers, you know, New Agers, who believe that just because they give assent to those things, that that qualifies them for entry. And I want you to know, that's not the way it's going to be. They may accept the truths of Christ, the Christian faith. But these people here at the dinner table accepted heaven. And these people in the parable accepted the invitation to the feast. But, do you remember the word? But, when they finally concluded, they remained on the outside of the feast. Just like many who give assent to Christian claims will remain on the outside of the faith when it comes time to conclude time, time and history. So let me ask you, do you really believe in Jesus Christ? It's, it's the most important question that can be asked. Do you really believe? There are some of you here, there are some of you here who that question is so relevant to all eternity rests in that question. Your heaven rests in that question. Whether you really believe or not. Boy, don't you know that the lively dinner table here kind of got real serious at this point. Because conviction does that. It makes life what it really is. Serious stuff. Doesn't mean that it can't be fun. But, but, but there's real people to be lost and real people to be saved in these questions. Well, now the table's turned suddenly. Suddenly we're whisked away from the dinner table. And now we're on the road with Jesus in the verses that follow. I want you to notice in verse 25, Jesus here has moved from those people who are just considering Him, like maybe a few of you in this auditorium are. You're just here considering Him. And I get letters from people who I've just enjoyed so much who have said, I've been sitting in this series and I'm considering Christ. But now Jesus moves from those just considering Him to those who are literally following Him. I mean, they're not, they've, moved, they've moved a much further distance in their relationship with Christ. Look at verse 25. It says, Now great multitudes were going along with Him. And He turned and said to them. Now remember, every word has meaning here. I want you to get the picture. There's a great pro-Jesus crowd here. Do you feel that? Great pro-Jesus crowd. And, and it says here, they are going along with Him. But if you'll notice in the next verse, 
Jesus will twist that phrase a little bit and He'll say, if anyone comes to Me. Did you know there's a huge mammoth Grand Canyon chasm between going along with and coming to? I want you to imagine the scene because there's one word that's real critical in this next story. Imagine this great multitude. They're all following. Imagine the whole congregation following behind me. And it says, and a great multitude was following Jesus. And He did what? He turned, right? And when you hear the word turn, does that not arrest your attention that something serious is about to happen? He's going to turn on them. And He's going to say some really difficult things to them. In fact, what he's about to say, G. Campbell Morgan said, are among the most solemn and searching of Jesus' words in all the Scripture. Because you know what he knows that they have? See, he knows what's in their heart. And he knows all they're going along with him is at this point what we would put under the term soft belief. Now he's going to ask them if they really believe it. Look at verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross cannot be my disciple. Now let me tell you, would that not turn a, a celebrative, starry-eyed, admiring crowd into one that now is cross-legged and cross-armed thinking, whoa, what is this? It's something really serious. And Jesus is bringing conviction, the ointment of conviction, into this great crowd. He's saying, you can be a believer who goes along with me in soft belief, but if you want to be a disciple, my disciple, who comes to me, who learns from me, who impacts the world with me, and that's the only kind I want, by the way, because he tells us that in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. It's the only kind he wants as a disciple. If you want that, then what I just laid out for you is the fine print in the contract. It's the price tag. Here's what it starts with. For you to have this kind of followership, it will cost you every other loyalty in your life. I just want you to know that. Every other loyalty. In fact, he uses the word hate, and it shocks us. And let me tell you, it shocked them in that day, the word hate. Hate mother, hate father, hate sisters, hate my life. Well, in the sense of shaking your fist and cursing at them, no, because one of the great commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. But in the sense of which he's speaking, and that is competitive loyalties, yeah, you ought to hate it. Anytime you feel another thing pulling you away from loyalty to Christ, you ought to say, I hate that. Even if it's your own life, your own feelings, your own lust, your own desires. There ought to be that specific, tangible in there. That's what he's calling for. Now, you know, that works out in very practical ways in a person's life. And I've got a living illustration of that. And I'd like Ani Fairjala to come up here. Why don't you come up here, Ani? And because uh, Ani and I got a chance to talk in the last couple of weeks, and I thought, you know, this fits the passage. This really fits the passage. It's, you know, maybe it's just me, but I get the feeling Ani's not from around here, don't you? <laughs> uh, Ani, why don't you tell us where you're from? Give us some background. 
I'm not from here. I grew up in Cairo, Egypt. That's where I was born, and I just moved here three years ago. And I grew up to a Catholic family, which is very rare in Egypt in general, Coptic Catholic family. And um, I went to Catholic school, and um, I, have, I had a very highly motivated parents. We are so ach goal achievement oriented. <laughs> high standards. Wanted high things for you, like what? Well, my dad wanted, was always pushing me in his, well, you should go through medical school, and then after that, you, what you need to do is to teach. This is what, you know, to be a professor at the medical school. Mm -hmm. You know, the Middle East, just like the Far East, family is even more tight than it is here. And so growing up in a Coptic Catholic Egyptian family with high goals and, and uh, high dreams for you must have been a lot of pressure, but there came a place, especially in your faith, where you and your family parted ways. And why don't you tell us about that? When I was about 18, um, I was in first year medical school, and um, I, just, I was going to the Catholic church and I was doing all the things that Catholic, you know, but all the Catholic rituals. And then there was this big emptiness. There was this hole that I couldn't find fill. And um, so I, I decided to go to the Protestant church to kind of, and this was a big defiance for my family because my parents said, uh-uh, you're not doing that. I mean, you're staying where you are. But, uh, a lot of tension there. Huh? A lot of tension, and, uh, but I, I, just, I just felt I wanted to do that, and uh, I went ahead and did that, and I, and I became a believer through the Protestant church. Hmm. And then now my family thinks, well, there's something has changed. Well, you're good the way you are, so just be where you are. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, that sounds real good, but when we were talking earlier, can you imagine growing up in a family that's got deep traditions. Some of you grew up in families in the Catholic Church, Church of Christ, Methodist, whatever, and you go to Fellowship Bible Church. And your families go, oh my goodness, what's happened to you? You know, and not that one is splitting you know, better than the other at this point. We're just talking about choosing to follow Jesus Christ the way He wants you to. And uh, being in that setting, you know, that was tremendous pressure to make a decision as an 18-year-old that I'm going to leave, I'm going to follow where I think Christ is leading me, rather than what mom and dad and brothers and sisters, and I'm sure aunts and uncles and everything else, have always expected me to go. Right. Yeah. And uh, then we were talking, there came a place in career. You know, he's been raised, I mean, to be a professor, a medical professor in the university, and everybody's got their dreams set on that, and you're going to have stature and face in the community, and dad's going to feel good about himself and all that, but then something changed and all that. What happened? Right, they, the university kind of held the position, my position, just because uh, of my faith. And uh, I was actually told, uh, the assistant, one of the assistant professors told me, you know, when you finish your residency, you're not going to be on staff just because you're Christian. And this was the first time to just hit me in my face. No, wait a minute. They told you that you weren't going to, because you, you were at the top of your class, weren't you? Right. And so what they told you is when you finished, after you'd done all this work, that you probably wouldn't get the position right. that you'd worked your whole life for. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, I was not in a, uh, when they gave me the residency, it wasn't a specialty that I wanted, so uh, I decided to resign and just give up the whole, uh, the whole residency and faculty position over there. If I was well, you probably gave it up because you had something you, weren't gonna, you already knew you were going to go do, right? Not really. I didn't know anything about what I was going to do. I was just, I prayed about it and I felt that I, this was not my place. There was another place for me and I didn't know what it was at that point. Wow. Like, can you feel that? Whole life. Everybody's banking on you. Everybody's invested in you. You discover that it really is a Muslim country and they don't want Christians having positions of authority 
So they've already told you, if you've worked, you're not going to get what you've worked your life for. You might get some substandard thing and you can finish it out. Maybe save face with the family. But you decided to give it all up and just trust Christ, right? Right, and this caused a lot of turbulence in our family and even circle of friends around because what I was expected to do, I didn't do it. I just did what I thought was, was right at that time. Hmm. And um, up to now, people still back home think I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's all that turned out? I mean, what, what's happened? I mean, there you were kind of open for anything, followed Christ. What, what took place after that? I trusted the Lord with my life. I sat for the tests that to come over here and I just passed both of them and I came over here and God gave me the residency that I wanted, the specialty that I wanted. And uh, my dream of being a professor, uh, I'm getting it, but right here, so I'm going to be teach on teaching staff at the medical center next year. Wow. Yeah, great. Thank you, Ani. Appreciate it. Now, you know, that's just one glimpse. That's a, that's a good story. It's a real story. And I bet for a number of us, there are places along the line where there comes, there comes a fork in the road. And you can go the comfortable, standard, expected route. Or you can do something different, and that is fall back on your ultimate loyalty. And if it's Jesus Christ, if that's what your ultimate loyalty is, that may take you a different route. And no matter what anybody else says, what Jesus is saying is, that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm not saying you're going to get what you want. I'm just saying, I want preeminence in your life and anything else you need to hate. Anything that competes with that. Now that is an incredibly strong statement. And you know, though we passed over it real quickly, Brownie to give up medical school and the medical professorship for nothing with no guarantees. That's what Jesus Christ is asking you to do. No guarantees other than me. I'm your guarantee. No other loyalty but me. No other gods before me. Just me. The second price tag is this. Verse 27. It's not just every other loyalty. It'll also cost you. It'll cost you your way every day. And you know how he presents that? He presents that with a cross. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must carry... And I thought it was interesting. You must carry not... He didn't just say a cross. He says your own cross. And folks, let me tell you, everybody here has their own cross to bear. Whether it's illness, whether it's job, or whatever. I had a an individual come up afterwards. We had just a great talk afterwards telling me, you know, I wish I could do more in the ministry, ministry part of the church, but I'm wrestling with my job. And, and sometimes I just feel so guilty about that. And I said, why? I said, didn't you hear what the passage was for you? Look at the words, your own cross. Everybody's got that. And Jesus is saying, when you get up, you got all your dreams, ambitions, things you'd like to do, all He wants you to do is take up your own cross and do what He's asking you to do, which means you have to say no to yourself every day. The cross is not a negative symbol. It is the bridge to life. If you are ever going to experience what you hear saints talk about and read great stories and books about and experiencing God and having the blessing of God and having powerful encounters with God, if you're a person sitting in the audience, you go, you know, I just don't relate to a lot of those things. The cross is the bridge to those things. 
Because as long as you are putting down the cross and struggling to make life make sense and doing it on your own, you are keeping yourself on the other side where there is no life. Not real life. You may have it under control, but control is not life, it's just control. He's saying this is the price tag. No other loyalty but me. You have to give up your way every day. Now that is the price tag. And all of a sudden, can you imagine that crowd, that great, celebrative, excited crowd sitting there going, man, I don't know. I don't know. Now let me ask you this question. Why would Jesus lay down such stringent requirements of being a disciple? Well, he answers that in the two little illustrations that follow. <coughs> Excuse me. In the two illustrations that follow. If you'll notice, one is about a tower and the other is about a war. And before we even look at those, let me just tell you, those two images sum up life. Because everything in life is about a building and a battle. Did you know that? Think about it. When God made man in the garden, He said, be fruitful and multiply. Build. And then He said, subdue the earth. Battle. When Israel was brought out of the loins of Abraham, He said, I'm going to make you a great nation and a great people. Build. But I want you to go into this land and take it from the enemy. Battle. When Jesus Christ was talking to His disciples about His church, He said, upon this rock I will build My church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail battle against it. But you know, all that gets reduced down to every life here. In every life here, God wants to create a great building and He wants to win the battle through you. Did you know that? Every person here. But you can only do it with conviction. That's the point. Now notice the image, and then I'm going to make a couple of statements about it. First of all, very quickly, when he brings up the issue of the tower, he says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, and then I'm taking that as our own life, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who observe it begin to ridicule, saying, this man began to build, and he's not able to finish. Here's the point. When you came to Christ... You had in mind the abundant life, right? I did. And God says, you know what? I got even bigger things in mind. I want to build you into a real man. I want, you to make, I want to make you a man of honor. I want to make you a tower of strength. I want to make you a person through whom I can guard the rest of the world and trust it to. You. I want to make a difference through you. But you know what? If you don't have conviction, that tower will never be finished because there are going to be times you're, you won't feel like building that tower. There will be times you don't want to give your resources to that tower. There will be times where you'll just want to give up because the work is too exhausting. That's why if you want to have that kind of life, you have to also have that kind of conviction or you won't be able to finish. And if you don't finish, you know what everybody's going to do? They're going to stand around looking at your life saying, See, I, did, I knew that stuff. That religion didn't work. They're going to ridicule you. Say, it didn't work. Well, how about the army? Notice what he says in verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. And if he doesn't, when the other is still far away, he's going to have to send a delegation and ask terms of peace or compromise. Now here's the point. 
We have a real enemy. Now look at the illustration. We have 10,000, but what does the enemy have? 20,000. Now that ought to tell me something right from the very beginning in my Christian life. I'm going to always battle against superior forces. I am. I'm going to always battle against superior forces. The world, my flesh, and the devil are way stronger than me. So how am I against those superior forces going to advance my life and the cause of Christ and win? How am I going to do that? There's only one word that answers that. It's conviction. It's why an inferior army always beats a superior army numerically because they have the will and the resolve to win. They've made up their mind in advance. And if you don't, if you don't, if it's all a soft belief, then what will happen in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the temptation, in the midst of the call of the flesh, in the midst of the compromise, in the midst of all those things, what will happen is you'll send out your little delegation and ask for terms of compromise. And you'll settle for something less. And you won't like what you get because you've left God out. That's why it concludes in verse 33, so therefore no one of you can be my disciple who does not first give up all his possessions. That's a conviction of the heart. Now I want you to know that all of that sounds hard, I know. And I tell you, I, I almost refrain from even saying it because oftentimes people can sit where they are and they're so overwhelmed by those requirements, they say, I just, I don't know, I don't know. And that's okay. You can stay there and deliberate. That's important. But I want to end the message by just reminding you, which is not in the text, but is in other texts, why Jesus Christ would ask for that kind of price tag. Remember how we started? We started with saying, heaven is great. Remember? And I want to bring us all the way back to the very beginning, because you know what? It is. And not only is heaven great, but this life is great if we live it by the way God wants us to live it. Let me show you just a sampling of Scriptures that just remind us that the price tag is not too expensive for what we get. First of all, look up here. I want to show you one Scripture. This, this passage comes you know, from, from the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And it's Peter asking what you're... I know what you're asking. You're asking what Peter's asking. It's right there on the screen. Behold, we've left everything to follow you. What's going to be for us? And notice what Jesus says. And really notice what He says very carefully. How He answers this. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the Gospel's sake. But that he shall receive a hundred times more where? Where? Now. He's not talking about pie in the sky. He's saying this stuff pays off now. Right now. In this life. In the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution. Remember there's battle. And in the world to come it pays off. Because you'll get a place at the dinner table. Eternal life. Isn't that great? Let's look at another passage. Look at 1 Timothy. Here's the way Paul says it. He says, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now listen real close. Let's slow the vehicle down. Since it holds promise for when? 
The present life. We're not talking about tomorrow. We're not talking about eternity. We're saying godliness pays now. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. Just like Jesus. But it also pays for the life to come. And then he says this. It's a trustworthy statement. This statement deserves full acceptance. Do you see that? And then he says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now look at Luke 9. He says this, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Do you hear that dinner party? But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who shall find it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here not just to sell a product. I'm here to offer the life of Jesus Christ through His Gospel. And I tell you, that's the only reason I'm here. Because I want you to live. And I want you to see how those verses get reduced to specific life applications. I'm going to give you 13 of them here at the very end. Just listen to them. Don't write them down. But I want you to see them come up on the screen. Because these are the things that I have seen in people's lives who have the conviction that I've talked about. Here's, here's the first benefit. Now, in this present age, now, here's what they have. Those people have peace of mind. Isn't that a great statement? They just have peace of mind. Just know that everything's okay. Did you know the Gospel gives you that? It gives you peace. Secondly, the Gospel gives you eternal meaning and purpose in all you do. You're just not working for now. All of a sudden, your whole life is lifted up to another level. Things you do, people you meet, activities you get involved in, you begin to sense their eternal significance in this world. Thirdly, you have exciting experiences through partnership with the living God. There is no greater moment, no greater moment than when someone actually senses and experiences that they're not alone in this work. That God is bearing them alone. God is gracing them to succeed. God is their partner in life. And they're experiencing that firsthand. Fourthly, you get a good name and reputation that inspires others. When you follow the Gospel of Jesus Christ, He gives you a good name. And He inspires others through you. He helps you to develop deep and lasting friendships. I mean, all the long-term relationships I have were, were and are with my Christian friends who we have a common eternal friendship with. Then there's the healing knowledge that you are loved for who you are, not for what you do. You finally get off you know, that treadmill that keeps saying, if I just do this, then people will love me. Did you know people are on that treadmill every day? They think if I just do another thing, if I just get a higher achievement, then people will notice me and love me. They never will. They never will. When the promised land is already there for you to take, you are loved. You are accepted. Then you get an awareness of your eternal significance. God wants to use me for eternity. And as He uses you, then you get the honor and acclaim of God. And, and the thought that one day I'll stand before God and receive the honor and acclaim of God. My life counts. Over time, you will develop wisdom. Over time, you'll have success in the most important relationships that any person wants success in. Their marriage, their home, their children, their friends. The Gospel gives you that. The Gospel gives you balance in life because Jesus Christ will tell you when to say no. 
You may not want to say no. He may have to slap your hand because you want to keep doing more. But if you listen to Jesus Christ, He'll give you balance in life. He'll also help you escape from a thousand foolish dead ends and tragic consequences that will plague all those around you who are also running the race of life, but they're choosing other things than the slave who came to give life. And then finally, over a lifetime, you follow with conviction Jesus Christ who says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And in the end, He will give you a lasting legacy in the lives of others. You won't leave wounds. You'll leave wealth to everyone you've touched. Do you want that kind of life? It's going to cost you everything. Let's pray. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed after we pray. Would you stand with me? Father, now I pray that You would go with us in the deliberations of our heart. Lord, may You live in these next days to help us think about our lives. Lord, it is our desire to be an I-squared kind of people. And yet what we've learned today is that that will come with an incredible price tag. But Lord, help us not shrink back in fear of giving up loyalties and giving up even our own life because we really love our lives. Help us to believe that as we enter into that place of faith, reassure us, encourage us, and urge us to believe that on the other side is everything we really ever wanted. Go with us now as we think on these things and give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.